This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, and welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Marvelous Joe. And I'm his twin brother, Johnny DC. And in this episode, finally, we get around to reviewing the first Iron Man film that came out in 2008, starring Robert Downey Jr. Of course, it's pretty much a modern classic. We don't have to tell you guys how good it is. Hopefully, you've seen it. If you haven't, shame on you. Shame! (laughs) Because it's amazing, and it kicked off the MCU that we know and love today. Yeah, I'd forgotten how good this movie was. It's been a while since I've seen it. I had forgotten how good it was, which I actually don't appreciate as a DC fan. But, uh, (laughs) Dan, do I got to respect it? Yep. We'll discuss all our thoughts about the movie later on this episode. But before that, we're going to break down the latest comic book movie news to come out in this past week, including the new Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania trailer and the news that Angela Bassett has won the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role in a Motion Picture Like a Badass. It's a long title for an award. Uh, Just a heads up, we are recording this episode a little bit early. James Gunn has said that he will be announcing DC's slate this month. So just in case he announces that while I'm away in Las Vegas on a business trip, we will definitely be talking about that in the next episode. If it happens, I'm just keeping my eye on my news feed, just waiting for it any day now. I hope it happens when you're on vacation. That way you just explode from wanting to talk about it so much. (laughs) But uh, as always, guys, we list our segment times in our episode description. So feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip ahead to a particular topic. Don't forget, guys, to join us on Patreon, where we offer ad-free episodes of the show, access to our Discord chat community, where you can shoot the shit with Jonathan and I, and you get access to our new Infinity Crisis Marvel vs. DC deck-building card game, all at the Dynamic 2.0 tier, which is only $2 a month. And in our fantastic $4 tier, you get all of that plus access to our monthly bonus episodes, including blooper reels and top 10 shows, and the visual data from our dual episodes at no extra cost. And finally, our X-Force tier, which is $10 a month, gets you all that, and you get to become an executive producer of this show and help us determine the episode content. Visit patreon.com slash dynamicduel and pick a tier that works for you. If you're interested in supporting the show but not able to join Patreon, stop by our website, dynamicduel.com, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter, where we keep you informed on all things going on with the show, and you get free access to the visual data of the results from our latest Duel episode when you sign up and confirm your email. 
Thanks to everyone who does that, but with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. A no prize is an award that Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award that we post on Instagram and in our newsletter for the person that we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week, we asked, what's your number one favorite Marvel or DC movie or show of all time and why? We got a ton of answers. Yeah, we judged the answers based on the reasoning for the pick, not based on the film or show itself. So let's break down our honorable mentions as well as the no prize winner. Our first honorable mention goes to Brandon Estragard, who said... All right, easily this one has to go to Batman 89 for me. Um, It was the first live-action superhero movie that I watched, so it holds a really special place in my heart. Um, I remember owning the VHS with the black black box uh, gold bat symbol on it, and I'm like 90% sure that my dad stole that from Hollywood Video. I was a kid, didn't care, super jazzed about it. Um, I actually watched it again with my godson recently, and he loved it. Yeah, very few things bring a sense of nostalgia as strongly for me as the Batman 89 film on VHS with like the Looney Tunes opening and like the Diet Coke commercial with Alfred. (laughs) Yeah, we were a little bit too young to see this movie in theaters when it came out. We were only three years old, but we definitely watched the hell out of that VHS. And it was also our first live action superhero film. Yes, this is another movie that I'm surprised we haven't gotten around to reviewing on the show yet. Eventually we will. Uh, and I really look forward to seeing it again because it's been quite a while since I've seen it. Yeah, I think we were going to review it earlier, but I ended up doing a guest spot on the Blast From Our Past podcast and I reviewed it on their show. But eventually we'll get to it on this podcast. So great answer, Brandon. Our next honorable mention goes to Nate, who said, Hey guys, it's Nate here. And really, you want me to pick one movie or TV show from Marvel or DC? That's just unheard of. If I had to choose, I'm going to go with The Avengers just because it really set the standard for movies going forward. You know, never saw anything like it before. Bringing all these movies together into one culmination and seeing how well it worked. So, yeah, I'm going to go with The Avengers. Hell yeah, The Avengers, man. That's a fantastic answer. Totally understand why you would pick that movie. It is, after all, one of the greatest films ever made in the history of cinema. Wow. Okay. All right. As we discussed in our review of that film, there's no reason why that movie should have worked. And I think we definitely take it for granted now. But I remember back in the day where like an Avengers movie would have to be five hours long. There's just too much story to tell with these many characters. But uh, no, Joss Whedon and the rest of the crew pulled it off. Great ensemble cast, great action, great storytelling, an entirely satisfying cinematic experience. One of the all-time greats, for sure. Yeah, we reviewed The Avengers, and I think we gave it four and a half stars. It's it's a really solid film, and really, blockbusters don't get bigger than Avengers movies. Oh yeah, certainly they're bigger than uh, Justice League movies. And speaking of that, let's move on to our next honorable mention, which goes to Scotty Macho, who said... My favorite DC movie of all time would have to be Zack Snyder's Justice League. And let me tell you why. One, Zack Snyder's vision is fully realized, and it's beautiful. Not what whatever was released in 2017. Two, every character has been done justice. Pun intended. And three, last but not least, black Superman suit. I, I've lived. I have lived. 
Yeah, this is a fantastic answer. Zack Snyder's Justice League is my favorite DC film as well. The thing is just so unbelievably epic. At four hours long, it's everything I wanted to see in a Justice League film with these larger-than-life and mythical figures. It wasn't technically a blockbuster because it wasn't in theaters, but it's like beyond blockbuster status. It's epic status. The theater would not be able to handle this movie. Yeah, because no one would go see it because it's way too damn long. Trim this movie down to about three hours, and then we can start talking about how good it is. Oh, we've already talked about how good it was in our review. (laughs) That's true. Touche. We want to give a quick shout out to everyone who took the time to visit our website and record an answer, including Miggy Matangian, whose favorite film was Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, John Brown, who said Aquaman, George Abelson, who said Captain America Civil War, James Chatterton, who said Spectacular Spider-Man, and Connor Pierce, who also answered with Justice League Dark Apocalypse War. Yeah, thanks to all of you, but the winner of this week's No Prize is Dustin Balcom, who said, Hey, Dustin here from What in the Anime Podcast, and my favorite DC show of all time is Smallville, and... The reason for it being is when I was 13 to 16, I was actually homeless. And one of the first things I bought with my own money that wasn't food related or to help me stay somewhere was the fourth season of Smallville. It helped me get through a really rough time in my life. Superman's always been one of my favorites and it helped inspire hope in me to get through that bad time and also to provide a better future for myself as well as my future family. And I think I've succeeded in that. Yeah, dude, you totally have. Congrats to you being a father of such an awesome family. I remember when I got COVID, Dustin's family sent me a pizza, and it just meant so much to me. He's a really good guy. Apparently inspired by Superman himself. Yeah, literally, right? Smallville was such a great show. Coincidentally, I actually watched the pilot episode yesterday with my daughters, just trying to get them into it. The special effects are so much worse than I remember, but I didn't care when I was watching it when I was in high school. I watched the shit out of that show, and it still holds a very fond place in my heart. Yeah, it's really heartwarming to hear Dustin's story. You know, when he was watching the show, he wasn't thinking, somebody save me. He was thinking, you know what? I'm just going to be Superman and save myself. Boom. That's how you do it. That's what comics are all about. Congrats again to Dustin Balcom for winning this week's No Prize. If you, the listener, want to shout out winning your own No Prize, stay tuned to later on this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news. All right, uh, this past week we got the new trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which comes out in just over a month, and I'm pretty hyped. I really enjoyed the last trailer that came out for this movie, and this one gave us a little bit more, maybe too much, but also I think there's a lot to the movie that we have yet to see. Yeah, that was my first impression when I finished watching the trailer. Like, did I just see something from the third act in Final Battle? Yeah, this trailer was really one of those kinds of previews that shows the beginning, middle, and end of the film, which I don't appreciate. But we see Ant-Man in the course of this preview multiply almost exponentially. There's a ton of them. So I'm thinking that we may have Scott Lang die multiple times in this film, but just by the virtue of the fact that there's like thousands of him, he will still ultimately end up saving the day and getting out of this quantum realm. Or at least Um, one version of him, right? We know that the writer for Quantumania is also a writer on Rick and Morty. And there have been so many times that Rick and Morty have died in that show, yet like it turns out it's just like an alternate version. Like I'm still not sure if the Rick and Morty I'm watching is the original one from like the pilot that I'm witnessing. I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing happened with this movie. 
as much as I hate to admit it, Marvel has been killing it with their trailers lately. Like in the past, it was really easy to criticize them because like, oh yeah, like of course they're going to throw a joke in the final shot of the trailer. They're not doing that anymore. Like it's all like really intense and emotional. They're just killing it. Yeah, whoever they've hired recently for the trailers, including these Ant-Man previews and the recent Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 trailer, absolutely crushing it, absolutely selling us on the drama of these films. Which is interesting because, you know, Paul Rudd is a comedic actor. So for him to really sell the drama just kind of shows the level of talented actor that he is. But even more than Paul Rudd, I got to say, Jonathan Majors as Kang kind of stole the show for me in this trailer. Yeah, to this day, I still haven't really seen him in anything outside of the Loki television show. But uh, he compels me to watch more. And in regards to Paul Rudd, Scott Lang, you know, he looks pretty beat up by the end of this trailer. And uh, it's hard to watch because he's such a likable character. I want to jump in there and fight for him. Hopefully the Wasp does that because he must be protected at all costs. Uh, The trailer starts out basically with Kang trying to strike a bargain with Scott Lang, telling him that in exchange for some kind of item or device that he wants Ant-Man to steal for him, he will give him time. And I assume that means he will actually send him back in time to gain back those years that he lost with his daughter when he was last stuck in the quantum realm between the events of Infinity War and Endgame. Michelle Pfeiffer's Jenna Van Dyne here doesn't trust Kang at all. She obviously knows who he is based on her time spent down there. And she said something interesting in that he can rewrite time and erase entire timelines. Now, we know from the Loki show that uh, he who remains was the last surviving king after he had eliminated all other timelines except for what he called the sacred timeline. And it was the TVA's job to maintain that sacred timeline and they would prune errant timelines that would pop up. So it looks like the technology that the TVA used in this pruning process, Kang has already developed by this point. And he's basically threatening the MCU timeline with pruning, it looks like. Yeah, and talk about stakes, right? But also, you know, what he's promising Ant-Man is super compelling. Like, who of us doesn't want more time, right? Time really is like the one currency we have in this life. And to be able to get more of that and to be able to, like, give people that is an amazing power. Oh, yeah. King's going to be amazing. We know that this isn't going to be the only film that he's in. I think the tagline is like, this is just the start of the dynasty, which will then carry over into Avengers the King Dynasty. But he wasn't the only villain to pop up in this trailer. We also got a brief look at MODOK, who is shown here both with his faceplate on and without the faceplate. And I always had a hunch that if we ever got a live action version of MODOK, I would puke because dude is (laughs) fucking gross looking in the comics. And he looks every bit as ridiculous as I thought he would when he's not wearing the faceplates. What's interesting is that we learned that MODOK is actually going to be Darren Cross. Yeah, he was Yellow Jacket, right? Yes, the villain from the first Ant-Man movie who was sent into the quantum realm when Scott Lang broke his size-changing device. Dude, he looks bad and in like unintentional way. Like the (laughs) CG on him is not complete kind of way. It's really terrible looking. I really hope that he keeps the mask on for a majority of this film. Or at least maybe they really set up the weirdness of the whole quantum realm enough to make him at least seem like he fits right in. I feel like they could have done a better job with him. And I'm hoping that the special effects just need a little bit more polish. 
because he literally looks like a floating head. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about Darren Cross being MODOK, because in the comics, it was George Tarleton who was an employee of AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. The character of MODOK is so tied into the organization of AIM, but if his origin lies within the quantum realm, it's hard to see how they can do that. So it almost seems like this weird alternate version of MODOK that we're getting within this film. If you guys want to learn more about MODOK, definitely check out our Hector Hammond versus MODOK dual episode. That all being said, I don't know how much, you know, the average moviegoer is tied into the comics backstory of MODOK. As long as he shows up in some form or another, I think a lot of people will be happy. Again, as long as he keeps on that mask. There was another shot where we see Stinger, who is Cassie Lang, Ant-Man's daughter. Uh, We see her either grow or shrink at some point, or it may just be the scale of the environment that she's in. But uh, it's cool to see that she'll be displaying some of her own superpowers in the course of this film, which we figured would happen. But now we know for sure. What did you think of the final shot of this trailer where we see Kang doing his double energy beam blast at the camera? I thought that was pretty sweet. Dude, that's how you end a trailer. That was a really, really cool shot. And it just got me so pumped by the end of it for this movie. Yeah, I can't wait to see the context behind this shot. If you guys want to learn more about Kang, obviously, you know, read the comics, but also check out our Professor Zoom versus Kang dual episode. This is probably the last trailer that we're going to get prior to the movie coming out the Friday after Valentine's Day on February 17th. So not much more waiting and can't wait to see it. But speaking of movies we can't wait to see, that brings us to our question of the week. What Marvel or DC theatrical release are you most looking forward to in 2023? Yeah, there's a lot. Marvel itself has five theatrical releases, including Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, The Marvels, and Kraven the Hunter. And DC has four in Shazam! Fury of the Gods, The Flash, Blue Beetle, and Aquaman The Lost Kingdom. Record your answer at dynamicduel.com by clicking on the red microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner, which will prompt you to leave us a voicemail. Your message can be up to 30 seconds long, and don't forget to leave your name in case we include you on the podcast. We'll pick our favorite answer and award that person a Dynamic Duel No Prize that we'll post to Instagram and our email newsletter. Be sure to answer before January 21st. In other Marvel news, this past week, Angela Bassett won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Queen Ramonda in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which is fucking awesome. It's always great when an actor or actress wins a prestigious award for a Marvel or DC film because it just adds more clout to the genre overall, which I think is largely ignored and dismissed by the higher ups. Yeah, there haven't been too many actors that have been nominated for acting awards in the Golden Globes. I think there's only been five, including Angela Bassett. There was Ryan Reynolds for Deadpool. Yeah, and the rest were all Joker actors, including Jack Nicholson, Joaquin Phoenix, and Heath Ledger. Right. Jared Leto's so pissed off right now. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really touching moment Angela Bassett gave a lot of love to her former leading man, Chadwick Boseman. She said that they embarked on this journey of Black Panther together with love, that the cast mourned, they loved, they healed, and they felt they were surrounded each and every day by the light and spirit of Chadwick Boseman. And that was a somber moment, but um, it was really touching that she said that. And there's no doubting that she gave a great performance in that movie. I myself nominated her for a Brothers Award that this show gives out. Yeah, and I feel kind of vindicated because she was my choice for the best actress in Marvel for 2022. And uh, you went with Letitia Wright. 
Well, yeah, Letitia was the lead star of that movie, and like we've already established that there is no award more prestigious than the Brothers Award. So the fact that, <laughs> you know, Angela Bassett won a Golden Globe, fine. You know, Letitia won the Brothers Award. That's fair. That's fair. I guess I can't argue with that. <laughs> but uh, great news again. Congratulations to Angela Bassett. Uh, we'll see if she wins the Oscar when those nominations are announced in a few weeks. And then that award ceremony is held next month. Fingers crossed for her. Fingers crossed. Not going to lie, I'm kind of jealous because this is the first acting accolade for an actor in an MCU film. And that never happened in the DCEU. Like we got awards for the Jokers, but neither of those performances were in the DCEU. And I was kind of hoping that we would beat Marvel to that. And now it's never going to happen because the DCEU is going to get rebooted. So there you go. Well, maybe James Gunn's DCU will win Best Picture before Marvel. You don't know. It's not going to be good enough. I'm just going to let you know now. You don't know. Check your expectations. (laughs) No. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. But I think that does it for all the news for this episode, so let's go ahead and get into our main event, where we review the first MCU film, 2008's Iron Man. And I just realized that this is like an all-Marvel episode. All the news, the main event, it's all Marvel. Ugh. Why am I even here? Yeah, you can just get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) All my DC peeps, just go ahead and move on out. We don't need to be here. No, no, no. They're going to want to stay because, of course, everyone recognizes how awesome this Iron Man film is. It was directed by Jon Favreau, starring Robert Downey Jr., Jeff Bridges, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Terrence Howard. It was the first film produced by Marvel Studios and, of course, their first entry into their now industry-leading Marvel Cinematic Universe. Prior to Iron Man's release, Marvel superhero films were produced by other studios that owned the movie rights to the characters, such as 20th Century Fox's X-Men and Daredevil films, Sony's Spider-Man and Ghost Rider films, and Universal's Hulk film. One way or another, the rights of most of these characters reverted back to Marvel, but in the mid-2000s, the company only had a handful of heroes to work with in regards to making their own movies. Chief among them was Iron Man, probably Marvel's most popular character that hadn't yet been adapted. The technology really wasn't there yet for an Iron Man film, but fortunately, by the year 2008, we had reached that point. At that time, Marvel Studios was entirely unproven and was a giant wild card, and I, along with a lot of other fans, weren't quite sure whether we could trust them to actually turn out a decent movie, because it was all unprecedented. To my knowledge, no other publishing company had ever been like, we're just going to make our own films. And I remember thinking, like, why wouldn't you just work with an existing studio? Like, what does Marvel even know about making movies? And boy, was I wrong. 
Well, did Paramount have the rights to Iron Man or did they just help Marvel distribute the film? They were just distributing. They weren't producing in any capacity. Interesting. And I'm glad I was wrong about all of this because, you know, right out of the gate, Marvel Studios crushed it under the guidance of President Kevin Feige and proved that no one understood and cherished their characters more than Marvel itself. Yeah, Marvel was lucky in the fact that they didn't have like a larger parent studio to answer to when they started out, at least. You know, DC has been owned by Warner Brothers for decades now, so they've never really had the opportunity to head their own studio because they didn't need to because they had Warner Brothers. But now I think it's pretty clear that the fewer people you have standing in the way of these filmmakers creating these larger than life worlds using these comic book characters, the better. Absolutely. Yeah, the DCU was fucked from the get-go because of all the shit that the heads of Warner Brothers was pulling. From Batman v Superman to Justice League, all that crazy crap. I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far because DC has put out some fantastic films, but you know they're not going to be able to maintain the cohesion that Marvel has because there's too many cooks in the kitchen working on too many projects. Until now, of course. I mean, even now you have Matt Reeves and Todd Phillips, though. That's true. But back to Iron Man, I just want everybody to know up top who hasn't seen the movie. I can't imagine that's anybody. But if you haven't, this will be a spoiler review, as all of our movie reviews are. So be sure to watch Iron Man before listening to this if you haven't, so you don't ruin any of the story surprises for yourself. Now, I know, obviously, this film owes a vast majority of its success to Robert Downey Jr., who is an acting savant and such an engaging performer, but I want to hold off talking about him for now until our character breakdown. I want to talk about everything else that makes this such a great movie. I remember the main impression that I had of the movie while walking out of the cinema for the first time after seeing it was that it felt like it was one of the most contemporary films I had ever seen, which sounds strange to say, but there was like this feeling around the cusp of entering the 2010s that technology had crossed an important threshold in accessibility with like the invention of the smartphone, the rise in interactive voice response systems and touchscreen interfaces. Iron Man presented a futurist sci-fi vision of something that felt much more plausible than anything else, I think, up to that point. And it was exciting having this feeling like you had a clear idea of where we were all headed. Yeah, I think I know where you're coming from. You know, when the Superman movie came out, their tagline was, you will believe a man can fly. And I kind of got that same impression watching the Iron Man movie again just the other day. Superman, of course, is able to fly because he's an alien, but to have someone really fly, like using technology in the real world, I honestly believed I saw Robert Downey Jr. hovering around in his garage. It really made me, in a more believable way, believe that a man could actually fly. Yeah, and like the holograms, you know, the AI that was on display, even the arc reactor It all seemed more accessible than other science fiction tech like Star Wars lightsabers or Star Trek starships. Yeah, and in a really cool way, like, dare I say, maybe even a cooler way than Batman? Because here you have this guy who made this suit that looked so cool that did things that you feel like are just on the cusp of reality that could actually be done. Again, this whole believe a man could fly thing. I got to give kudos to Marvel for choosing this as their first film because it was just so accessible right out the gate and so interesting and so fun. Yeah, Iron Man's writers, their production designers, costume department, visual effects team, all of them, they had apparently done their research and it almost made it feel like they had their finger on the pulse of society when the movie came out, which made everything seem kind of like culturally relevant, but more importantly, cool. It was a cool movie. 
Big kudos to director John Favreau for corralling all of this amazing talent and for having a real focused vision for this world building. I remember when John Favreau was hired, I had no faith. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so Foggy Nelson from Daredevil wants to get into directing now? Like, I, I guess Elf was good. And then I went to the theaters to see Zathura to get an idea of what his uh, directing would be like for sci-fi. But I walked out of that film thinking like that was just generic as hell. I was a much more cynical fanboy back then because superhero films were so inconsistent leading up to 2008 when all of a sudden they became amazing for some reason. And nowadays I reserve judgment a little bit more. I actually think they became amazing in 2005 with Batman Begins, which was just a fantastic origin story. But I would argue that Iron Man is just as good of an origin story as Mm -hmm. Batman Begins, which is high praise coming from a DC fan who really enjoyed Batman Begins. Yeah, I mean, like as an origin story, it doesn't get much better than this. Now, I'll admit that Iron Man did wobble on its dismount, but the first two acts were phenomenal. They established the movie's themes of redemption, ingenuity, and responsibility really well, especially redemption, where the character of Tony Stark rebuilt himself up from almost nothing with a box of scraps in a cave and developed this incredible weapon and means of survival, along with a sense of accountability. You know, the fact that the film's tagline was, heroes aren't born, they're made, perfectly exemplified this like very pro-American dream capitalist notion of building something successful from the ground up, which happens quite literally in this movie. I didn't realize that was the film's tagline. That's like perfect for Marvel. Absolutely. And like you start the movie wanting to hate this guy for inheriting a billion dollar company through no effort of his own. But in a sense, this origin story is about Tony Stark earning his keep through his own ingenuity, making himself into more than he would have been otherwise. Yeah, it's about not wasting his life like how Jensen told him to right before he died. Yeah, that was such a touching moment. A lot of great moments in this movie. But I will admit that it is not perfect. The third act is rather generic, even for its time. You know, for as much as the protagonist here, Tony Stark, earns his title of hero, the villain kind of pratfalls into his title, transforming from this rather intimidating figure into like this mustache twirling maniac with little to no transition. It's like once Obadiah knew he was discovered by Pepper Potts, he lost all of his cunning and subtlety, and he just went all out attacking S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and families in the streets, even though his was a very personal agenda against Tony Stark specifically. Well, it was kind of revealed that he was a bad guy this whole time, who, you know, clearly didn't care about people's lives because he was selling weapons to terrorists. Right, but he was very much like a figure in the shadows. Like I said, cunning. And there was just something very uncunning about how he handled himself at the end. That's true. Obadiah's motivation of jealousy was understandable, but the film's execution of getting him to the point where they're punching each other in their armored faces could have been better. I agree. But, you know, Marvel did have a large villain problem, I would say, in its first phase, you know, outside of maybe Loki. But I think it's something they only really started to fix with Thanos. Yeah, I would say you're right there. But literally, that's like one of the only faults I have with this movie. Everything else from the visual effects, the believable cinematography, and of course, the acting were all great. I was actually surprised how well the special effects held up still to this day, you know, especially after watching something like Smallville. 
I really enjoyed their use of both practical and CG effects in this movie. Oh, yeah. The transition between the CGI effects and Stan Winston's actual metal suits that they had built, it was seamless. So you couldn't really tell the difference too much. And what a cool design for the suit. Like the suit looked better in this movie than I feel like it ever has in the comics. Absolutely. You know, it was largely inspired by Adi Granov's art, but fully realized it is a thing of beauty for sure. Absolutely. But more importantly than the suit is the man within the suit, Robert Downey Jr. Let's go ahead and talk about him in our character breakdown. So Iron Man, a.k.a. Tony Stark, was played by Robert Downey Jr., who was a tour de force in this film. Not only does he effortlessly sell Tony as this brilliant, eccentric genius, but he manages to endear us to him despite the arrogance and the callousness. We root for him almost entirely because of his charisma. And you know, sure, we do learn that he has good intentions and he goes on this journey and discovers how to be selfless here, but it's that dichotomy that draws us to him. Like, how can this guy be such a pretentious dick, but simultaneously be so very likable? It's these competing emotions that we can't explain and therefore we feel fascinated by him. And it's all part of the great mystery of charismatic, magnetic people. It's like, do I love him? Do I hate him? I don't know, but uh, I want to know them. I'm going to keep watching him. Yeah. It's basically Charisma 101. And that's all Robert Downey Jr. Like, oh yeah, I was going to argue with you about it being a tour de force performance because I was going to be like, eh, that's just Robert Downey Jr. being Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and he's just naturally charismatic. But actually, he gave a really solid, like, emotional performance in quite a few scenes in this film. There's just so much he does subtly that conveys so much emotion. He's a fantastic actor, obviously. Yeah, and his performance was so flawless in pulling this off and so captivating he pretty much single-handedly kick-started this entire cinematic universe. I can't imagine anyone else doing what he did here. And you never thought that that would have happened with an actor like Robert Downey Jr., who has such a sketchy past. Yeah, I remember when he was cast, the only thing I had really seen him in was Ally McBeal. And I think I saw Only You, but I only had vague memories of it as a child. Well, there's also Chaplin. He was good in that. I never saw Chaplin, though. Oh, what? How did I see Chaplin, then? I don't know. But yeah, he was more well known for his shenanigans in his public life than for his film roles, I would say. Right. Yeah, I know it was a major risk for the studio to take him on as their lead, but it was entirely worth the investment that they put in. And it's easy to see why he gets paid so much for the Marvel movies that he's in. Yeah, he was like the highest paid actor for a while, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. And in this movie, his arc as a character is really a classic one of a guy who had it all and then has it taken away from him only to emerge a better man. It's been done a lot of times before, but it's kind of surprising that there aren't too many superheroes that the arc can apply to outside of Tony Stark. Because it's timeless, except in this movie's case, when he emerged as a better man, he emerged wearing a suit of fucking armor, which makes his arc badass. I was trying to think if there was anyone on DC of whom that arc can be attributed, but I think you're right. Like Bruce Wayne lost it all in The Dark Knight Rises, but you know, he emerged basically the same man who went down into the pit for the most part. I think a large part of Robert Denny's likability factor was not only his charisma, but his humor. He was freaking hilarious in this movie. You know, whether he's like just having a conversation, talking with soldiers at the beginning or, you know, like talking to a robot and scolding him. It's just good stuff. Well, I mean, he's quick witted, right? And it's pretty well known that having a quick sense of humor directly correlates to your level of intelligence. So it was a great way to highlight just how smart this guy was by also making him kind of a smart ass. 
And I feel like he really wasn't that way in the comics. Like Tony Stark was kind of generic and maybe yeah. that's why other superheroes were a little bit more popular than him because, mm-hmm. you know, Spider-Man is funny. Tony Stark to me never was funny in the comics until right. Robert Downey Jr. played him. And then, yeah, he was a total smart ass. Yeah, he's been like arrogant and stuff in the comics, but arrogance without humor is pretty unappealing. So I think they went the best route possible for this character. Let's move on to Pepper Potts, who is played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, I won't claim to be the biggest fan of Gwyneth Paltrow in any of her films, except for this one. I am her biggest fan in this film. (laughs) She's great. She's fucking great. You know, like normally she comes across as this like mom Buzz Killington type character. But in this movie, I don't know if it was the direction she was given or maybe even her wardrobe and makeup team, but she was cute and capable and strong, yet emotionally vulnerable. Her chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. was off the fucking chain. Yeah, they worked really well off of each other. I feel like not many people can keep up with Robert Downey Jr.'s just like wittiness But Gwyneth Paltrow made you believe that Pepper Potts could. Yeah, which is strange because she doesn't come across as particularly witty. She just comes across as like very much on top of her shit, you know, including Tony Stark shit. Yeah, like she knew him really well and and like knew everything he was going to say before he said it or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that I feel like she wasn't as likable in any of her subsequent appearances. It's almost like they had her become more of a executive authority role in the second movie to kind of contrast against Black Widow, who was like the more playful, cute character in Iron Man 2. Well, that's true. I am glad, though, that they ended up making her rescue in Endgame. Yeah. Pepper Potts is just a great character, so it was nice to see her evolve into that superhero alongside Tony. In the comics, Pepper Potts and Happy Hogan got married. And after seeing this movie for the first time, I wondered if the film series was going to go down that route. But I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad that they matched up Tony with Pepper and they kind of carried that over into the comics as well. It just seemed to really work and really tone down his more womanizing traits. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on to Ironmonger, a.k.a. Obadiah Stane, who is played by Jeff Bridges. I know that I had mentioned that Ironmonger was kind of a weak point within the third act of this film, but I do think that he was still a serviceable villain. Certainly menacing, certainly intimidating, definitely given a boost by the legendary Jeff Bridges. Yeah, to say that Ironmonger was a bad villain was not to say that Jeff Bridges' performance was bad, because it was good. Yeah, in any other actor's hands, I think Obadiah Stane would have come across as just generic. But I think Jeff Bridges stood out as much as he could, given, you know, the few scenes that he was in. I think his approach to the character felt very less is more, basically. He was kind of withdrawn. But when he did go off, like he exploded, like at the scientist guy. And when he like tore out Tony Stark's arc reactor from his chest, that was just fucking brutal and scary. Totally. Very effective. I think it was more effective outside of the armor than within. I definitely agree with that. I still don't get how he moved inside of the armor because it definitely wasn't like Iron Man's suit. It was uh, controls within the chess piece. Well, then I find it hard to believe that he was that good at moving the robot around unless he was just like played a shit ton of video games. (laughs) You know, (laughs) let's go ahead and move on to the last main character in this movie, James Rhodes, who is played by Terrence Howard. Man, every time I see this movie, I always feel bad for Terrence Howard. Um, Oh, yeah. I think it's a real shame that he didn't waver on his contract, because I think if he would have played ball, he would have had a great career as James Rhodes in War Machine. That's not to disparage Don Cheadle, 
because I actually like Don Cheadle more as an actor on his own. But I like Terrence Howard's chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. more. Really? I didn't think yeah. he had good chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. at all. Interesting. Why is that? I don't know. I just felt like the way he reacted to Robert Downey Jr.'s presence and wittiness always just kind of fell flat. I thought he was really quiet. I didn't think he was as interesting as Robert Downey Jr. And I think that Don Cheadle gave a performance that, while not as perhaps interesting as Robert Downey Jr., was at least more so than Terrence Howard. It's hard to say, one, because I don't think Terrence Howard really got the chance I really liked the stuff that he had here. You know, you say he's not interesting, but he's largely the straight man to Tony Stark's eccentricity. That's their relationship dynamic. That's true. Like you have scenes like on the airplane that I thought played out perfectly. I will say that Terrence Howard gave a performance that made me feel like it was more believable that he was a military man. Don Cheadle seems a little bit more like a comic book character. So I'll give you that in favor of Terrence Howard. And maybe some of my own bias against him is coming off, considering the fact that I know that he was kind of playing hardball with Marvel and maybe didn't love the character more than the money he was going to get. Mm-hmm. That's valid. Yeah. Because for the first movie, he actually was paid more than Robert Downey Jr., considering he had just won an Oscar. And also the studio had to take out an insurance policy against Robert Downey Jr. So they couldn't really afford to pay him more than they did. The insurance policy being, you know, just in case RDJ had a relapse due to his addiction. Right. But that is it for all the characters. Let's go ahead and move into the story highlights. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In Afghanistan, Tony Stark is attacked while under military escort and injured by shrapnel in an explosion. He passes out and awakens as a captive of the Ten Rings terrorist group. Great start to the film. Yeah, I'm really glad they started with this flashback. Yeah, actually, I think that's vital to the audience's appreciation of the character. I think they went specifically with a nonlinear approach where we see him get attacked and in captivity before we see all the Playboy stuff. I think specifically to make sure that audiences know that even though he might be a douchebag, he's about to go on this path of humility. And therefore, you know, audiences sympathize with him a little bit more through the arrogance and like him more. Right. Yeah, it's just a really interesting and like intense scene, too, like with all the gunfire going on. And then you see Stark Industries on that missile and you're like, what? what is this? What's going on? Intriguing stuff. Yeah. When I was watching this again for this review, I was kind of wishing that we had got Ken Johnson on to uh, do a guest for this. Oh, Because yeah. I would have oh. loved to have gotten his perspective on all the military stuff that happens in this movie from, you know, the opening scene to the Air Force response after Iron Man's attack in Gulmira and going up against those fighter jets. Yeah, that would have been perfect. Why didn't we do that? I don't know. But he does have plans for a new podcast in the works. Uh, I'm not going to announce it here because I don't want to steal that thunder from him, but uh, really looking forward to it if and when it gets off the ground. 
For those of you who may be confused who we're talking about, go and listen to our review of The Punisher. Ken is a soldier and also an executive producer of the show. Brilliant guy. Back to the movie, in a flashback three days prior, Tony wins the Apogee Award in Las Vegas, where a montage of his backstory as a prodigy inventor is shown. After sleeping with a reporter back at his home in Malibu, he flies with James Rhodes, the military liaison to Stark Industries, to Afghanistan for a presentation of the Jericho missile. After the presentation, Stark's convoy is attacked. So it goes full circle. Captured, Tony learns that fellow captive Ho Yinsen saved his life by implanting an electromagnet in his chest to prevent the shrapnel from reaching his heart. The Ten Rings order Tony to build his Jericho missile for them. Instead, with Yinsen's help, he builds a miniature arc reactor to replace the electromagnet and a suit of armor to escape. I remember like the surgery scene just being like horrified by that. And especially like when he had the car battery wired to his chest. I mean, talk about humbling a guy. Oh, definitely. It was interesting that the movie went with this electromagnetic device because in the comics, Stark and Yinsen developed this chest piece that would go over his heart and serve as kind of like a pacemaker that would like keep his heart beating despite the fact that there was shrapnel in it. Eventually in the comics, Stark's entire heart was replaced with a machine device turning him almost into like this cyborg type character. But I still really like the route they went in the film because it led to the creation of the arc reactor. Yeah, which is a really cool device. I don't know if that's from the comics. I don't think it was at the time. You know, in the comics, the big technology that really powered Iron Man's suit was transistors. In electronics, transistors are basically semiconductors that can increase the electrical output that is put into them. And it was like new technology at the time and kind of felt sci-fi in its ability to amplify power, basically. So Stanley was like putting the word transistor before everything, (laughs) granting Iron Man his transistor enhanced strength, his transistor enhanced flight and like magnets and shit like that. It was pretty funny. (laughs) And now we have the arc reactor as our sci-fi tech. Yinsen dies buying Tony time to suit up in the Mark I armor, which he uses to destroy and flee the terrorist compound. Sad scene. Very touching when Yinsen died. Yeah, it was so well done. Almost straight out of the comics, too. Yinsen sacrificed himself to buy Stark more time as his chess piece was powering up. Self-sacrifice in movies just gets me every time. I will break down. The fact that, you know, he was talking about how he would see his family again. Then you learned that they had died. And that's what he was talking about. It was was just, it was heavy stuff. Super heavy, super good. What did you think of the Mark One armor? That was so cool to see on screen. You know, I still remember like seeing the Mark One armor in the comics. And it was such a great adaptation of that. Yeah, real bulky, but functional and still a force to be reckoned with despite, you know, looking kind of junky. Yeah, I, I love seeing it in action. This was a fantastic action scene. Just him taking on all of the terrorists there at the compound. Tony is found by James Rhodes in the desert and comes home where he announces in a press conference that Stark Industries will no longer manufacture weapons for the military, upsetting company manager Obadiah Stain. I love that the first thing he wanted when he got back to America was a cheeseburger and that, you know, <laughs> he was like eating it during the press conference and everything. I, I just it just made me want one. Like it was such an effective piece of product placement. Yeah, because it was so organic. They didn't go out of the way to say that this was like a Burger King Whopper or something like that. It was totally understandable why you'd want to go there and they didn't like shove it down your throat too much. Right. Even though I wanted them to. Yeah, man, totally. I I love me a good Whopper with cheese. (laughs) Delicious. 
The scene where Tony Stark has the reporters kind of hunkered down to be a little bit less formal and everything, that was an entire ad lib by Robert Downey Jr. in the moment, which he did quite a bit within this film that I thought was just genius. Really? Yeah. Nice. That's cool. You got to respect that. Tony replaces his arc reactor with a new model and begins upgrading the Mark I armor using repulsor technology for flight capability. The Stark Industries board of directors locks Tony out of his company, leaving Stain in charge. After a test flight reveals the Mark II armor is susceptible to icing at high altitudes, Tony develops the Mark III armor. I remember seeing the icing scene in the theater and thinking like, okay, I didn't realize that they were going to play up on that again later on in the movie. Yeah, it was great foreshadowing and again done very organically just out of, you know, Tony Stark being this like freaking madman Howard Hughes type figure who's just pushing the limit just because that's who he is. And that was a nice setup for like why the Iron Man suit is like red and gold. You know, there was like a reason for so many things. Brilliant. So well written. I think it's so many comic book stories. It's a real challenge for the writers to explain why the hero came up with the costume that they did. Even with Batman, you know, we got a reason in Batman Begins and that he's trying to inspire fear. But in other movies, like they don't really ever explain that. So he's just like this guy walking around dressed as a giant bat, which is kind of strange. But you don't run into that problem with this movie. No, it's entirely believable that this guy would wear this suit of armor. Right, exactly. No suspension of disbelief required. Very, very little. Tony attends a benefit where he and Pepper dance, and he learns that Stark Industries had sold weapons under the table to the terrorists in the country of Golmira. He dons the Mark III to fly there and eliminates the terrorists and their Stark Industries weapons. I love the fact that he didn't build this suit initially to be a weapon, but like the repulsor technology that he used for flight, he realized in a moment of anger that the tech could be used as like a force to damage opponents, you know, and he added some other stuff as well. But it was kind of cool that it was the kind of this serendipitous thing that he created this suit of armor. And just at that moment where people in the country that Jensen was from and where he was imprisoned nearby were in trouble. Yeah, it was a neat epiphany that he had in the moment. And the fight scene against the terrorists in Golmira was freaking badass. Just the sound of the repulsors going off and the scene with his uh, targeting systems while they had human hostages and stuff like that. It was really damn cool. And like even the way he lands on the scene coming out of flight. Yeah, total superhero landing. I like the moment where he like drops the metaphorical mic by like shooting the tank with that missile, then just like walks away. He's like, yep, (laughs) you're done. Don't even need to see what happens. Like a badass. The Air Force picks up on Stark's activity and pursues him, but he evades capture. This was another really cool scene, like just back to back, really cool action scenes. Seeing Iron Man go toe to toe with fighter jets. That is probably like my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's a great visual for sure. Uh, Back to the movie, Pepper Potts learns about Tony's actions and Stain visits with the Ten Rings leader, and it's revealed that Tony was captured at the start due to a hit that Stain had put out on him. Stain kills the members of the Ten Rings and steals what they had salvaged of the Mark I. I like that little sonic device weapon that Obadiah Stain used. I thought it was used really effectively both on the Ten Rings later and later on on Tony Stark. Right, yeah, there was like another little piece of technology that seems totally plausible, like it could replace Mace one day or something like that. Right, right. Was the leader of the Ten Rings here supposed to be the Mandarin originally? No, he wasn't. Though the original villain of this movie was going to be the Mandarin before they decided against it and chose to build up to the Mandarin. But he was kind of supposed to evoke the character by wielding apparently one of the Mandarin's rings or just a ring. 
Hmm. Yeah, I noticed the ring. I still think it was cool that they included the Ten Rings because it was a nice Easter egg as I was watching the film. I was like, okay, so in this world, the Ten Rings is like a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. Which played out really stupidly in Iron Man 3, but Marvel managed to salvage in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Right. Tony asks Pepper to hack into Stark Industries to find out who's conducting the secret deals, and she learns that it was Obadiah Stane, who is also building his own suit of armor. Realizing he's been discovered, Stane paralyzes and steals the arc reactor from Tony's chest, unaware that a previous reactor existed. Stane uses the reactor to power his Ironmonger armor, while Tony suits up using the old reactor. I think the scene where Obadiah talks with Pepper Potts in the office where she's hacking the files, I think that was the most frightening Obadiah stain was in the movie. And I think a lot of that is because of Gwyneth Paltrow's performance. Like you could see the fear in her eyes. And the dialogue was pretty good too because it came across as accusatory, but with deniability. Yeah, totally. The scene when Obadiah Stane tore out the arc reactor from Tony Stark's chest was like a holy shit moment for me. I was like, how the hell is the hero going to survive this? Because I had totally forgotten about the old arc reactor too. But when Tony Stark worked his way down to the basement and tried to reach for the old arc reactor and then couldn't, I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. I thought it was a really great moment when Dummy, his robot assistant, helped him out there. It was cute. Yeah, totally. They managed to interject this like lighthearted moment in this really harrowing kind of scene. And again, like it just goes to show like there was no scene wasted earlier in the film, even the moments where it seemed like it was just played for humor. Obadiah Stane in the Ironmonger armor fights Stark on a Los Angeles highway and in the air, intent on fulfilling his vendetta against him. They end up on the roof of Stark Industries, where Tony's armor runs out of power, and he has Pepper blow up the large arc reactor powering the company. The explosion kills Stain. Though I'm still not sure why it didn't kill Tony Stark. Right, yeah, this is where the movie kind of falters a little bit. I did think it was a neat device how Tony's old arc reactor was running out of power, you know, and that was like part of the stakes. And some of the ways they resolved that were pretty interesting with Iron Man ripping out Ironmonger's targeting system and visuals. But it played out a little bit weird. You know, it seems like the only reason Iron Man didn't die was because his suit was light enough to be blasted away from the arc reactor beam, whereas Ironmonger's armor was too heavy and therefore he got zapped by the beam. Well, maybe it just goes to show how much heavier the Ironmonger suit was. I mean, I actually really like the scene where both of them are lifting up into the sky and Ironmonger's suit is just like so much slower than Tony's. It's like trying to lift a (laughs) space shuttle off the ground. It's just like raising up in slow motion compared to Iron Man. (laughs) What I think is maybe even a bigger plot hole than Tony Stark getting knocked away while Ironmonger fried was at the end of the battle, we see Tony Stark's arc reactor in his chest like go out of power Mm -hmm. where did he get another one in time to not die from cardiac arrest like he's the only one capable of building it right and i've wondered that myself i figure there's two possible scenarios the first scenario is that obadiah stain's ironmonger arc reactor didn't get destroyed when he fell into the large arc reactor Mm -hmm. and they were able to pull that from the ironmonger armor and then give it back to tony stark The second scenario is that Iron Man has a little bit more time than you would think before the shrapnel enters his heart. So if he had like a period of a day to create a new arc reactor or fabricate one since the model was already designed, that's another possibility. 
It's not like he necessarily instantaneously dies the moment the arc reactor goes out. It's just that at that point, the shrapnel gets closer to his heart. Okay, well, I guess the moments where he got really weak and went into cardiac arrest, it was because the arc reactor was removed entirely from his chest. But here, that was not the case. Well, also, he had just been paralyzed by the sonic weapon the last time he was without the arc reactor. And so he was also recovering from that. Okay, yeah. I think either scenario works. But at the end of the film, a cover-up is orchestrated by the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization stating that Iron Man is Tony Stark's bodyguard. But Tony foregoes the story to instead reveal to the press that he is Iron Man. And in an after credit scene, Nick Fury tells Tony about the Avengers initiative. I have to admit that the first time I watched this movie in theaters, I did not get that Agent Coulson was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. until they said S.H.I.E.L.D. at the very end. And I was like, oh shit, it's been S.H.I.E.L.D. this whole time. <laughs> I first got that at the charity gala scene where Coulson and Stark were talking at the bar. I didn't catch on right away because the acronym for S.H.I.E.L.D. was different in the MCU than it was in the comics. In the comics, it stood for Strategic Hazardous Intervention Espionage and Logistics Directorate. Uh But here, it was the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. It wasn't until I heard the word logistics for the second time that it clicked for me because logistics was one of the only words that was shared between the two versions of the acronym. But yeah, the moment that Coulson says, just call a shield was iconic. Yeah, the theater was cheering. And especially also when they saw Sam Jackson as Nick Fury in the end credits scene. Yeah, actually, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't watch that scene because end credit scenes were not a thing really back then. So I didn't stick around. It wasn't until I heard about it on the internet afterward that I went back to the theater to see the movie again just for that scene. And plus, you know, I liked the movie a lot, so it was worth seeing again in theaters. I saw it the first time I saw it in theaters, I think just because I was talking about the movie after it was over and it just popped up and I was like, whoa, what is this? Whoa, what is this? It was an epic moment and, you know, one that goes down in history as a great bit of world building for the larger MCU. It just got fans so pumped that Marvel was heading down the direction of the Avengers. Right. Totally. But that's the whole movie. Overall, it's a fantastic film. There's very little wrong with it. Largely just that final battle between Iron Man and Iron Monger. Everything else was great. When this podcast became an official Tomato Meter approved publication for Rotten Tomatoes, they told us that our blurb that would be published on Rotten Tomatoes had to be a direct quote from the podcast. When we first applied, we thought we would be able to use the blurb that's on our episode badges as the official statement from our show. But since it has to be a direct quote, we're going to introduce a new aspect of our reviews where we just basically quote that verbatim. And so I give you my official Rotten Tomatoes blurb for Iron Man, which is an exceptionally well-made debut for Marvel Studios. Fun, engaging, and bolstered by a tour-de-force lead turn by the charismatic Robert Downey Jr. I'm giving Iron Man four and a half stars. A fresh rating. And I would agree with that. Four and a half stars is absolutely appropriate for this film, considering the only real qualm I have with it is its villain problem. The rest of it is fantastic from its action scenes to its humor to the performances to the direction and special effects. It was a fantastic superhero film near perfect and absolutely influential to many films that came afterward. Well said. But that does it for this review, guys. Let us know what you thought about the movie by writing to us at dynamicdualpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Instagram or Twitter. You can find links to all of our accounts by checking out our show notes or visiting our website, dynamicduel.com. 
And on our site, you can also find a link to our Patreon page, where you could join our dynamic 2-0 tier and chat with us and fellow listeners, our Fantastic Four tier, which gets you bonus content each month, or our X-Force tier that makes you an executive producer of this podcast. If you can't join Patreon, you can still support the show by signing up for our e-newsletter, also at dynamicduel.com. Our next episode is going to be a duel in lead up to our upcoming Team Duel episode between the Flash Rogues and the Brotherhood of Mutants. Next week, we're going to find out who would win in a fight between Pied Piper, the Flash villain, versus Songbird, who was one of the original members of the Thunderbolts team. And actually, there are rumors going around that she's going to be cast in the Thunderbolts movie. So that's pretty interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, John Starosky, Zachary Hepburn, Dustin Balcom, Mickey Matanguian, Brandon Estragard, Nathaniel Wagner, Levi Yaton, Nick Abanto, Austin Wasilowski, AJ Dunkerley, Scott Camacho, and Gil Camacho for helping make this podcast possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away. True believers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. 